0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 25 through 32. Uh, There's a story told of um, a very wealthy woman who was the head of her household. Um, In the household was a number of servants who were employed by this woman, and this woman had one rule, and that is that none of the servants could speak to her. Uh, But that rule was broken one evening. The woman had a dinner party, had a number of guests over. They were all sitting around the table. They were eating dinner, and one of the servants entered the room, approached the woman, and whispered into her ear that her son had just passed away from scarlet fever. And As the story goes, the woman just simply nodded her head, excused the servant, and proceeded on with her dinner party. Hardly affected at all upon hearing uh, this horrific news. We hear that story. Our response to that, understandably, is Does this woman have any feelings at all? Does this woman have a heart? Is this woman capable of experiencing any true grief? And I bring up that story and bring up those questions because it could be that some of you perhaps have had similar questions about God. Does God have feelings? Does God have a heart? Is God grieved by the sufferings that He sees in your lives and in this world? Well, we are beginning today a brief Q&A sermon series. This is something we try to do on a regular basis. It's been about a year and a half now, but through the month of March, I'm going to be seeking to answer some questions that you have submitted by email to us, and so let me just show you where we're going Uh, Over the next few Sundays, on March 15th, next Sunday, we'll talk about why Christians are called to sing in worship, to give a theological grounding for what we do here every Sunday. March 22nd, we'll consider this question of how the church should care for those who have mental illness. And on March 29th, um, by God's grace, I'll do my best to answer this question, what happens to people who have never heard the gospel? a big question that are on many people's minds. This morning the question is this, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to bring God into a place where He is grieved? Is that even possible and what does that look like? And you'll notice in our text that it indeed is possible because Paul commands us not to do it. In verse 30, of Ephesians 4, so we're going to be focusing on verse 30 in particular, but just for the sake of context, I'm going to read verses 25 through 32, but you'll notice verse 30 in particular is what we'll be considering this morning. So please stand now for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 4, verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. that it may give grace to those who hear. In verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our God, we call on you to open our eyes to behold the truth of this passage of Scripture through this preacher. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've been fighting a cold here this week, so pray for my voice to to last uh, through this message. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? You saw that there in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In order to understand this and to answer this question, I'm just going to go back to the very beginning and uh, get to some very basic theology to help us understand how best to answer this. So, first of all, let's answer this question: Who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, I don't want to presume that there that everybody here is familiar with basic Christian doctrine. Some people might be here for the first time. Maybe some people here have never been in a church before. So Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the technical answer to that question is to say that He is the uh, third person of the Holy Trinity. So we as Christians believe in something called the Trinity. And this is a very, very important doctrine for Christian theology. It is the doctrine that unites all Christian denominations. People talk a lot about all the differences among the denominations. one thing we hold in common is this belief in the Trinity. Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, Pentecostals, we all hold to this. But another reason that this is so important is because this is a doctrine that distinguishes the Christian faith from all other religions. Christianity has a lot in common with various other religions, but one thing that it has not in common with any religion is this idea of God as one in three persons. And so that's a very short, concise definition of the Trinity. We believe that God is one being who exists in three persons. Something very mysterious there. We are testing the limits of our understanding to think of God as one in one sense and three in another sense. One in being, three in person. So there's three persons who make up the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the one most often um, distinguished in the Bible, is the one who has set forth a plan of history, who has decreed all that has come to pass, the one who has planned our salvation from before the foundation of the world. That's what the Father did before, he even, uh, before you were even alive. God had you in mind. And plan for your salvation if you are a Christian. The Father, sometimes called the first person of the Trinity. The Son is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Uh, By the Son we mean Jesus, um, but it's important to keep in mind that the Son has existed for all eternity. Jesus had a beginning point in terms of when He took on human flesh when he was born into this world, which we celebrate at Christmas. But the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who the Bible calls the Word in John 1, the one who was, the the Word was God and the Word was with God, it says, that Word has existed for all eternity and in the incarnation took on flesh in the person of Jesus. So we think of Jesus as being born, but don't Mistake that for thinking that Jesus had a beginning. As the second person of the Trinity, He's always existed. And to deny that or to say that Jesus was created is a heresy uh, that goes back to the early centuries of church history. So the Father planned our salvation, the Son was sent then into the world to accomplish our salvation. He went to a cross, He died, He shed His blood, He's raised from the dead and has done, finished all that is necessary to save His people from their sins. The Son accomplished salvation. Now we have this third person of the Trinity, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as the one who applies our salvation. Father plans, Son accomplishes, The Holy Spirit applies, he opens our eyes, softens our heart. We're Christians because the Holy Spirit has changed us. It's his work that makes us Christians. I'm not gonna go any further on that because I'm gonna talk more about it in a moment. But the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So it's very important to understand that all of these three persons of the Trinity, they're all God. The Father is God. The Son is God, Jesus Christ is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So, I'm asking this question, who is the Holy Spirit? Here's the first answer, the Holy Spirit is God. Now, I think we're used to saying the Father is God, we're used to saying that Jesus is God, at least as evangelicals, but there's something about saying the Holy Spirit is God that maybe strikes us a, a little odd. Um, the Holy Spirit, see, friends, is, is not a, um, well, let, let me show you a couple passages first, just to show this. Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So here's the picture of God creating the world In time, eternity, past, and you see that the Spirit of God is there, participating in creation. The Spirit of God is God. Here's um, another passage in Acts chapter 5 that makes this point maybe a little more explicitly. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. These were two people in the early church who um, were dishonest with some property that they owned, And so here's Peter, he's speaking to Ananias, and he's admonishing Ananias. And he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God, because the Holy Spirit is God. So all three persons of the Trinity are divine, equal in eternity, power, and glory. But it's not only the case that all three persons of the Trinity are God. All three persons of the Trinity are persons. They're persons. The Father is a living person. Jesus is a living person resurrected from the dead. And the Holy Spirit, friends, is a person. And here is where I think people maybe get even more mixed up very often we think of the Holy Spirit as some kind of a force field or like an energy source of some sort, like, like maybe like the way gravity works in our universe. We think of the Spirit not as a person, but as some kind of inanimate power. And you, know, you can see that. And often I hear people when they pray or when they talk about God, often they'll refer to the Holy Spirit as it. I really hope that the Holy Spirit comes so that it can bless me or it can encourage. You know, you would never talk about Jesus that way, right? But believe on Jesus, invite it into your heart for salvation. We'd never say that, would we? Because we understand Jesus is a person, not an it, but very often we'll refer the Holy Spirit as it, because in our minds, I think there's this assumption that the Holy Spirit is not genuinely and sincerely a person, but He is. Throughout the Bible, the, 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 the Bible ascribes Holy Spirit as doing things like speaking, and having knowledge, and teaching, and bringing comfort to His people, praying. The Holy Spirit is said to pray, How does an inanimate force pray or speak or have knowledge? It doesn't. A person does those things. And here we see in verse 30 of Ephesians 4, another personal characteristic of the Holy Spirit. He can be grieved. That's something that only happens to a person. Gravity is never grieved by the way you act in this world. But the Holy Spirit can be grieved. So... Who is the Holy Spirit? He is God, and He is a person. He is a divine person. What that means, friends, is that the answer is yes. God has feelings. God has emotions. God is very unlike that woman that I talked about at the beginning of this sermon. He is not a cold, emotionally detached God. He's not the unmoved mover of Greek philosophy. He's a divine person. That word for grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is translated in other places as to bring sorrow or pain or distress. And in other places in the Bible, we'll see that God delights and He rejoices. Sometimes He has pity. Sometimes He has anger. God expresses Himself through emotions. It's a very important part of understanding Christian theology. Now, let me just clarify briefly because there's a lot of debate in theological circles about whether this is actually true or what it means that God would have emotions because some bad conclusions can be drawn from this. We don't mean, when we say that God has emotions, the way His emotions function are very different than the way our emotions function. You know, God doesn't get hysterical You know, God doesn't get to a point where his emotions overcome his ability to um, think about a situation and assess it. God doesn't get stressed out. You know, sometimes we just get so overwhelmed with everything. We're stressed out, we're agitated, and we just have to sit down and quit because we can't handle it anymore. That doesn't happen to God. God is never incapacitated by his emotions. He's never hindered by his emotions. He's never weakened by his emotions. He's not needy. Sometimes it's our emotional state that makes us needy. Don't don't think of God in that way. But think of him nonetheless as a God with emotions, true feelings, a God who we might even say is sensitive. God is sensitive. Sensitive. Now, this is very important to understand for the Christian faith because of of this, particularly with this idea of God as a a person, Holy Spirit as a person. What, What this tells us is that Christianity fundamentally is about, friends, a personal relationship with God. I've seen a lot of people for whom this is kind of a paradigm shift, eye-opening realization. They hear Christians speak to God as if they know Him, and that's surprising to them. Because many people think about God as if He's just this, you know, this unmoved mover again way up in space somewhere who is so far away it's like knowing the president you know it's like yeah i know the president i know that he's the president of our nation i know what he believes i see him on tv but i don't have a personal relationship with him i know about him but i don't know him a lot of people think about god that way and a lot of people think they're christians just because they know about god that's not what the bible's talking about christianity is not knowing about god christianity is knowing god having relationship with God, walking with God, listening to God, speaking to God, following God's leadership, being sensitive to His leading, growing in your knowledge of Him, just like you would grow in your knowledge of a friend or a spouse or a child or a roommate. Do you know God personally, is my question to you today. Do you have relationship with Him? Look what the Scriptures say here, Jeremiah chapter nine, "'Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, "'or the mighty man in his might, "'or the rich man in his riches. "'Let him who boasts boast in this one thing, "'that he understands and knows me.'" That he has relationship with me. That's something to boast about. I mean, I think you understand the context. Not to be proudful about it, but something to be celebrated. I know God. Matthew 7, (laughs) here's Jesus. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, it's possible to do religious things, even religiously impressive things, even miraculous things, and not know God. Do you know God? Do you have relationship with Him? The the way to have relationship with Him is to receive Christ as your Savior, to turn from your sin and believe upon Jesus, because on the basis of what Jesus has done, you can be reconciled to Him, and then the Holy Spirit will guide, lead, and empower you for godly living. That's what it is to have a relationship with God. So who is the Holy Spirit? He's God, but He's a person also. And that's important for answering this question about what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit. So just keep that in mind. Let's go to the second point. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Many things described for us in the Bible. One, and most fundamentally, is the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. That's what he loves to do, that's what he does best. He turns our hearts and our minds toward Jesus. He gets our hearts and minds fixated on Jesus. If you want to know if the Holy Spirit is active in your life, if your heart is warming toward Jesus, you find Jesus beautiful, you want to serve Jesus, you want to give Jesus thanks for your salvation, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says in John 15, Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he, here's what he's going to do. Here's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to bear witness about me. That's what the Spirit does. There's other passages in John that say that same thing. Um, Adam Delaplane shared with me this illustration, which I think is is really good to illustrate this. You know, if you go to a play and you're sitting in a theater and you're sitting in your seat and you're watching the play and the actors up front, uh, you might not realize it, but you know that behind you is a sound crew, kind of like our sound booth here at New Life, there's a, there's a booth and there's some people back there who are controlling the lights and controlling the sound and making sure <clears throat> that everything up on stage looks good, making sure that you in the audience can see and hear what's taking place on stage. Now imagine if the whole audience were just to turn around and start looking at the people in the sound booth. And just fix their eyes on the sound booth. What would they do? They would say, don't look at us. Turn around and look up on stage. We're not here so that you'll look at us. We're here so that you'll look up there. And that is a good illustration of the way the Holy Spirit works. He's not saying, here, just look at me. The Holy Spirit is saying, look at Jesus. I'm bearing witness to what Jesus has done and what he's going to do in his return. Most fundamentally, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Something else the Holy Spirit does. He regenerates dead sinners. He takes stony, unbelieving hearts, and He transforms them and makes them into hearts that now suddenly love, believe in, and treasure Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives Life. He causes people to be born again. Titus 3. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The only reason that anybody is a Christian is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. If it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit, nobody would be a Christian. There would be no Christians anywhere in the world or in history if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I I encourage you to uh, hear Linda Hu's testimony sometime. Linda is a Chinese student at Ball State. She's been here for uh, a couple of years and um, grew up in an atheist family in China, didn't know anything about God, came to Ball State, started getting... um, acquainted with some of the staff people at Crew, began to hear about this, this God. And the way Linda describes it is she says that she didn't really understand much about the theology of what Jesus has done, but she said that she just felt this sense that she had to follow this God. She said, I, I just, I could not say no to this God. She said there were times when she couldn't even sleep at night, just sensing God pressing upon her and working in her life. Friends, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit drawing her and changing her and softening her heart and regenerating her and giving her spiritual life. So the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Bible goes on, the Holy Spirit comforts us, assures us, convicts us of our sins, illumines our minds to understand the Word. The Holy Spirit has inspired Scripture so that we can be sure that this is God's Word that we're looking at when we open our Bibles and hear it preached. But very important to understand that the Holy Spirit lives in every Christian. If you are a Christian, that means you've been regenerated by the Spirit, and the Spirit now lives in you. Here's what it says in Romans 8. Paul says you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you but anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him if you don't have the spirit if the Holy Spirit is not living in you you're not a Christian you don't belong to God The Holy Spirit regenerates Christians and then lives in them. If the Holy Spirit is not in you, then your heart has not been regenerated, you don't have faith in Jesus, and you're not a Christian. So the important point here is that the Holy Spirit lives in every Christian. And here's what is so wonderful about this. If you look back to verse 30, our verse, it doesn't only say that we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit, but notice what it says, the second part. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. By whom you were sealed. This is what the Spirit does. He enters into our hearts, and then He seals us until the day of redemption. Second Corinthians 1 says, He has put His seal on us and given His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee of of what? A guarantee that you, Christian, will be preserved until the day of redemption. Verse 30, the day of redemption, that's when Jesus comes again. The Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts to preserve us until Jesus comes again. You know that song, the hymn that we sing, where we say, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We we all know what that feels like, right? Right? You know what that feels like? You're just kind of sick of it. You're tired of following Jesus. You're not sure you can do this anymore. And the flame of your faith, it just starts to flicker. And it just starts to die. And it's about to blow out. But if you're in Christ, friends, that flame is not going to blow out. The Holy Spirit is going to keep it lit. The Holy Spirit is going to preserve you because He has come in you to live in you to take up residence in your heart until the day of redemption. I saw this quote from John MacArthur recently. He said, if you could lose your salvation, if that were possible, you would. If that were possible, you would. That your heart would you would wander away. You just would on your own, you would. If that were remotely possible, it would happen to every one of us. But it doesn't happen to any who belong to Christ because of the Holy Spirit, because He has come into our hearts to seal us until the day of redemption. So, that leads us to the third point, seeking to answer this question. How, then, can we grieve the Holy Spirit? The reason I went through... Everything we've been through here so far is because it sets us up to understand the answer to this question. We have to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person and that He is a person who lives inside every Christian in order for us to understand how it can be possible that we could grieve Him. Now, think of this. He is the Holy Spirit. He's a spirit who upholds purity. He's entirely different. He's other than us because of His righteousness and His purity. That's what it is to be holy. This Holy Spirit has now come to live in your heart, and and He lives in you. It's not that He's just beside you. It's not that He's just watching you from afar. He lives in you. He's in your heart. That's what 2 Corinthians 1 says. He's given the Holy Spirit in our hearts, as a guarantee. It's kind of like if you, know, you are at home, when you're at home um, and you don't have any guests over, you just kind of you, know, you just let your hair down and, and you just do whatever you want and you, know, you say things you probably wouldn't normally say because you're in the privacy of your own home. You do things that you'd probably be embarrassed about if anybody knew, but you, know, you get a guest, you invite a guest over and they're in your bedroom there, suddenly you know, things are a little different, right? you're just a little more careful. you got a guest in your house. Now imagine if that guest were you know the president of the United States or the governor of the state or some you know really important person and they were in your house. Wouldn't you be extra careful? The Holy Spirit of the living God has not just moved into your house, he's moved into your heart. And so Everywhere you go, the Holy Spirit is in you. Everywhere. When you wake up in the morning, when you drive to work, the Holy Spirit is in your heart. When you're talking to your spouse, talking to your kids, when you're out late on Friday night with your friends, Holy Spirit is in your heart. Right when you lay your head down on the pillow and you have all those thoughts rushing through your mind, Holy Spirit is there. You're alone at night on the computer. Nobody else is around. You're going from website to website. The Holy Spirit of the living God is in you while that's happening. Now, let me remind you of the gospel, friends. The gospel tells us that we, as Christians, are fully accepted by God, that the righteousness of Christ is ours through faith, that our salvation is absolutely secure, But nonetheless, friends, it is possible for a Christian, even a Christian who is in that state of being righteous in Christ through faith alone, it is possible for the Christian to bring sorrow and sadness and distress to the heart of God by your sin. Your sin can hurt God. I I use that term... A little loosely. Again, we don't want to think of God as a helpless, needy being, but your sin can offend Him. It can bring Him sorrow. And what kinds of sins are we talking about? Well, if we just look at the context, I think it's probably any sin, but in the context of this passage, it seems to be largely consumed with the idea of sin in personal relationships. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's the Spirit who bonds us together as brothers and sisters in the faith. Well, if you look just briefly, let me run down verses 25 to 32 real quickly. Uh, Falsehood, uh, being angry in verse 26, Um, being honest with your work in verse 28, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And then verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, verse 31, kind of picks up. Bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, slander. You know, just constantly drawing up in your mind those things that people have done to offend you, and you just run them over in your head over and over again, and you just feel the anger and the bitterness just start to, to well up. It starts to come out of your mouth, and you start to say slanderous things to others about these people, a lack of kindness, a refusal to forgive, verse 32. It would seem here that what Paul is saying is that these things in particular are the kinds of things that grieve God's Spirit, that just just make Him hurt. The reason I think this is a really good question, and I'm glad that I'm preaching on it, is because my hope is that this will transform the way you look at sin and consider sin in your life. I would like to ask you to think of that sin, that besetting sin, that that sin that you just can't seem to get over, and start to think of it, not in terms of a mere violation or a mere infraction. I think for a lot of us, that's how we think about sin. It's like, okay, there's a bunch of rules that God has set out, a bunch of restrictions that are being placed on me, and now I've, I've broken some of those restrictions, and now I'm in trouble with God. And now He's probably going to forfeit blessings or make something bad happen to me later in the week to get me back for this sin. And there's all kinds of possible sins, and God has His people who are You know, looking through his word to see what kind of loophole that I haven't seen, like an IRS agent doing an audit, looking for the way you violated some, section two of paragraph four. You know, we think of it entirely in terms of this impersonal kind of abstract relationship. Perhaps it would change your view of your besetting sins if you began to see that it's a personal thing. That your sin, it is a violation of God's law, that's true. But I think more fundamentally, it's an offense against God, it's something that grieves him. It's something that brings him sorrow. What if you began to think of your sin in that way? This is something that has offended and hurt the God who has loved me from before the foundation of the world. who planned for my salvation before I was ever born, who sent His Son to die on the cross for me and sent His Spirit to open my eyes and change my heart. He's done everything necessary for my salvation. He's left no stone unturned. And now I'm going to do this? I'm going to say that? I'm not going to do this thing over here? That whenever we look at a sin, we would say, how could I grieve the heart of God and do this? How could I grieve God's heart by saying that? perhaps that could just absolutely change the way you fight sin and do battle with those demons that have been tracking you all your life. Grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Here's what Leo Tolstoy said, the great Russian writer. He said, Only people who are capable of loving strongly can also suffer great sorrow. I think what makes God capable of such deep sorrow at our sin is His very, very deep love for us as His people. His people for whom He's died, His people to whom He sent the Spirit to shape us, to mold us into the image of Christ, to make us holy. Friends, nobody in the history of the world has loved as strongly as Jesus Christ. Only people who are capable of loving strongly can also suffer great sorrow. We have a loving Savior. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, so it wasn't that we loved him, it was that he loved us. And now nothing in all creation can separate us from that love, that constant, eternal, ongoing, uninterrupted love that has sealed you for the day of redemption. Friends, this week, in your families, with your roommates, at work, at school, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pray. Lord God, you are kind to give us warnings in Scripture, and we are grateful for that. I pray, O Lord God, that through this message, our hearts would be more sensitive and aware to our sins and the way they offend you, And that as we reflect on your love for us, oh Lord, that our desire would be to do anything but grieve you. Because you've been so good to us. Thank you for your love in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.